Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. All right, welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Rachel Seelig, visiting scholar in the Department of Germanic Languages and Literatures at the University of Toronto. She's here to talk to us about her new book, Strangers in Berlin, Modern Jewish... All right, welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Rachel Seelig, visiting scholar in the Department of Germanic Languages and Literatures at the University of Toronto. She's here to talk to us about her new book, Strangers in Berlin, Modern Jewish Literature Between East and West, 1919-1933, to published in 2016 by the University of Michigan Press. Rachel, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. So first question, how did you come to write this book? Well, uh, this book, as is the case, I guess, with a lot of academic books, grew out of my doctoral dissertation. So I'll tell you how that came to be. Um, I uh, was studying uh, German-Jewish literature and and modern German-Jewish thought at the University of Chicago um, and sort of stumbled upon Yiddish literature almost by accident. I I took uh, one course on Yiddish literature and translation, uh, and the professor was uh, his his um, uh, sort of repeated slogan was uh, "This all sounds better in Yiddish," or "This sounds funnier in Yiddish," or "You really need to read this in Yiddish." And so I um, decided I needed to start to learn some Yiddish, which initially wasn't that difficult because I had a background in in Hebrew and German. Um, and in the process of starting to read some Yiddish texts in the original, uh, I became really fascinated by the fact that I kept discovering writers who spent time in Berlin, not just in Germany, but specifically in Berlin during the 1920s, which was a time that I was already very interested in um, because it's really regarded as uh, the golden age of German Jewish culture and frankly, the golden age of German culture, the Weimar period, this sort of roaring 20s, um, this kind of steamy, sexy time that was also very precarious politically and economically. Um, and so my interest in Weimar culture kind of collided with my interest or my new interest in Yiddish literature. Uh, and the fact that I kept coming upon these writers who were sojourners in Berlin during this really exciting period really captured my imagination um, and there was one writer in particular whose work I was really drawn to, um, Moshe Kuhlbach, who was one of these writers who spent about three years in Berlin in the early 1920s. Um, and I started delving more and more into his body of work and ended up presenting a paper, I think it was my very first conference paper, uh, in um, Berlin at a conference there on um, Eastern European Jewish migration to Germany. Um, and, uh, at that conference, I started to meet other colleagues who I was very, uh, kind of humbled and, and also pleased to discover shared this interest in 
uh, in migration and specifically in Eastern European Jewish migration westward. Um, so I presented at this conference. I met other colleagues who were presenting on similar themes. And I kind of realized, oh, this is, this is a gold mine. This is really, um, this isn't just a one-off. Uh, Moshe Kuhlbach is really in good company here. And this is something that I could develop into a bigger project. And so that, that sort of was the germ seed for, um, for the dissertation, um, which then later evolved into a book and really departed, um, pretty significantly from the dissertation, um, both in terms of its scope and in terms of its argument. Um, but, but that was sort of how, how it all started. So I've, I give a lot of credit to, to Moishe for, uh, for, for getting this project started. Fantastic. And we'll, um, move on, uh, a bit later in the interview to talk about, um, your chapter on, um, Moishe Kulbuk. But to start with, so your first chapter sets the scene for the rest of the book in outlining the basic history of the encounter between Eastern and Western Jews in Berlin and how this encounter was reflected in fiction and ethnographic reportage. Tell us a bit about this. Um, yeah, so that's exactly right. I, that, that was, uh, I have to also add that that was in many ways the hardest chapter to write because I was really trying to, um, tell, uh, a certain history from two sides, which is, um, turns out pretty challenging to do. Um, a lot of what I had read um, as a student of German Jewish culture and also of Yiddish and Hebrew literature um, had to do with the sort of polarization of these groups and, and the fact that, you know, you just use the terms Eastern and Western Jews. And I kind of adopt those um, those terms as well, because in a way, this is how these groups refer to one another, Ostjuden, Eastern Jews, and Vestjuden, Western Jews, or specifically German Jews. And a lot of what I had read about the relationship between these two groups um, was was very one-sided. So in a lot of um, German Jewish uh, or, or um, uh, studies on German Jewish history, um, there's a tendency to portray the so-called Ostjuden um, as unwanted outsiders, as kind of cultural infiltrators on the German scene. Um, and uh, in particular, uh a lot of studies that I read um, really emphasized the antipathy that German Jews held toward these their Eastern brethren, um, uh, and and that you know they they tended to view these. Um, this is the argument that's often made that they tended to view these um, Eastern European Jewish migrants as uh, backward, parochial, overly traditional, really mired in old. Um, traditions and rituals. Uh, and above all, they saw them as a kind of threat to what they viewed as their hard-won emancipation and kind of integration into German society. And in many ways, I think that that narrative is still is valid and is, is um, in many ways true. But what interested me as I started to look at this encounter from both sides was uh, the fact that it was actually much more complex, that we really had, um, particularly in the early, uh, the turn of the 20th century and then into the 1920s, um, 
a pretty sizable cohort of German Jewish intellectuals and writers who became really fascinated by Eastern European Jewish culture for a number of reasons, and in many cases even romanticized these so-called Eastern Jews, um, because they saw them as representatives of a culture that was diminishing, that was on the decline, or that was being forgotten among assimilated German Jews. So you had, um, on the one hand, you, you did have German Jews who were sort of um, expressed animosity toward Eastern European Jews, but then you had a lot of German Jews who were also really drawn to the East and, and or what, whatever their image of the East might have been. Um, and then the same can be said, uh, or, or, or a kind of similar um, uh, uh, approach can be taken to looking at the way that Eastern European Jews looked at their German Jewish brothers. For a long period, they were um, really fascinated by Germany and the German language and German culture as symbols of enlightenment and modernization, something that happened later in Eastern European Jewish communities than in Western European Jewish communities. So they really looked at ger the German Jew as a kind of model of that reform and enlightenment. Um, but then later also uh, expressed some amb ambivalence toward um, German Jews and ambivalence toward the idea of modernization, secularization, um, and so on. So, um, what I guess I was trying to portray in this chapter and really looking at the encounter from both sides was this ambivalence, this sense of, um, fascination and revulsion, um, uh, a sense of uh, the need to def differentiate one group from the other, but at the same time to find a kind of sense of identity um, or or uh, commonality with the other group. Um, and so uh, I, I was really trying to give as nuanced a portrayal as I could of this encounter as it evolved from around the late 19th century um, through the, the Weimar period or the, the 1920s and early 1930s. Great. So the next couple of chapters focus on the early golden years of the Weimar Republic, and you start with an examination of Ludwig Strauss and his poetry. Tell us about him and his concept of a pan-Jewish identity. Okay, so um, Strauss is a really interesting figure in my view in particular because, and this is something that I should maybe um, emphasize here, uh, most of the writers that I ended up really wanting to focus on in this book are not particular, are not household names. They're not particularly well-known writers. Um, Strauss is a good example of that. Um, in a way, he's sort of been forgotten. And yet in his own day, he was really um, an integral player in the German Jewish cultural scene um, went to school with Walter Benjamin and was a kind of close confidant, confidant of his, um, was the son-in-law of Martin Buber and had an ongoing um, uh, correspondence with Buber that was really influential for both figures. Um, so he, he was kind of an important guy, but he's sort of fallen to the wayside in um, cultural and literary history. And um, one of the reasons for that, I think, is because we don't quite know where to place him, what to do with him. He was a German-Jewish um intellectual and poet, um, who later immigrated to Palestine, British mandatory Palestine in the mid thirties and started writing in Hebrew and became a bilingual writer, which was something that was very unusual for German Jews and really goes against our typical 
image or even stereotype of German Jewish immigrants to Palestine and later Israel as being so German, more German than the, Germ- than the Germans, that they never actually mastered Hebrew and never became part of the um, Israeli or Hebrew literary scene. He, he really sort of goes against that, that myth, um, which might be one of the reasons why we kind of don't know where to put him in um, Jewish literary history. Um, but so you asked specifically about this pan-Jewish ideal. Um, so Strauss uh, became very close friends and colleagues with um, uh, a guy named Fritz Mordecai Kaufmann, um, who was uh, a journalist and an intellectual who started a literary journal that was kind of short-lived. It really was only published um, for a couple of years just before the outbreak of the First World War. Um, and it was called Die Freistadt, um, Al-Jüdische Revue, uh, which means the sanctuary, all-Jewish or pan-Jewish review. And it was a literary journal that was geared specifically toward that ideal of pan-Judaism. And what did uh, Kaufmann mean by that? Um, he wanted to create a new kind of Jewish cultural identity that um, was not based on borders between East and West, not based on the specific, the, the, the stereotypical kind of division of traditional Eastern Jews and modern Western Jews. He really felt that both groups had something to learn from one another. Um, and he especially felt that German Jews had a lot to learn from their Eastern European Jewish um, co-religionists. They thought that, uh, he thought that German Jews could really um, find a way to, to find a way back to their cultural identity by looking at Eastern European Jews as a model and by learning Hebrew and learning Yiddish. And this was an idea that really appealed to Strauss. And so he wrote, uh, quite a number of pieces for Kaufmann's journal, both poetry and articles. Um, what I write about at length in the chapter is an ongoing debate that he had with another intellectual named Julius Bob. Um, who basically argued that German Jews were so assimilated that they could never be capable of producing any culture, cultural works that are of any worth. And Strauss really wanted to combat this idea by saying, well, you know, if we find a way to rejuvenate ourselves and to renew our cultural identity by looking at Eastern European Jews as a, as a model, um, we will be able to, um, produce great Great literature and great art, um, and uh, and and so this this was a really important ideal to him. This idea that um, Eastern European Jews um, were not just kind of long distant cousins um, who had a totally different way of life and a do- totally different worldview, um, but rather they were kind of the torchbearers of a certain cultural identity and a tradition that he felt Jews should be really proud of. So you next move on to discuss uh, Moshe Kohlbach. Tell us a bit about him and the impact on his writings um, of his time in Berlin. Okay, so um, Kohlbach, uh, I always sort of think of him as a young kind of intrepid 
student type of, he, he wasn't exactly a student when he was in Berlin, although there are some rumors about him having audited some courses while he was there. But um, he was he was this young, very kind of adventurous guy who arrived. He was in his um, early 20s when he arrived in Berlin, 1921. Um, and he came there from Vilna, um, where he was from originally, uh, with the goal of really immersing himself in European culture. And he saw Berlin as the place to do this. Berlin was really the cultural capital of Central Europe. Um, we have to remember that Berlin was an entirely new city at this time because uh, when it was established as the capital of the Weimar Republic in 1919, so right in, you know, in the aftermath of the First World War, um, it was also transformed into a metropolis in, in the way that we, we understand that term today. It was a massive city um, of uh, close to 4 million inhabitants, not that far off of the what the population of Berlin is today. Um, and it expanded geographically. It was a city that um, was once uh, fairly small, um, comparable to most major European cities, um, but then became... Uh, there was a law that was passed that sort of united all of the surrounding towns and villages to make Berlin into this one massive metropolis. And so this was a place that was really attractive to writers like Kulbach, um, who came from various places in Eastern Europe and really wanted the big city experience. Um, and what I explore in the chapter about him is this idea that writers like Kulbach could arrive in Berlin and really um, soak everything that the, soak everything up that the city had to offer, and at the same time could kind of be anonymous and fairly invisible. Um, and that that fact was sort of a, was sort of an advantage. Ironically, um, they weren't particularly visible as Jews or as migrants, um, and so they could kind of just um, make the most of the experience of being in this, in this really fascinating, um, vibrant city that had so much to offer culturally. Um, so Kulbach, uh, arrives there in 1921. He stays until 1924, which is pretty typical for a lot of, a lot of Eastern European Jewish migrants who intended to only sojourn in the city. A lot of them ended up leaving around 1924 because this was the time that, um, the German economy restabilized and um, inflation was checked. And so it was no longer such an inexpensive place to live. That was one of the big attractions for a lot of these migrants. Um, so he was there really at the heyday of um, Weimar culture. And um, he read voraciously and in many ways tried to model some of the things that he was discovering in um, European literature of the day and specifically in German literature of the day. So things like expressionism, um, uh, this was something that was a, a really appealing new style to him. And he kind of tried to emulate that in Yiddish um, at a time when Yiddish poetry was really only beginning to develop. Um, and so what I argue in the chapter is that um, Kulbach, by, by being enabled to sort of be immersed in this in this culture, but also to kind of be on the sidelines and be invisible, he could um, create a new kind of literary aesthetic in Yiddish, a really experimental type of poetry, 
um, that also in some way looked back at the old country, at Vilna, at the place that he had come from, um, from a different lens. Something that I think is pretty typical of literary modernism. You know, it's, uh, you, you think of people like, um, Hemingway, for example, writing some of his greatest works while in exile in Paris. So Kulbach was, was kind of a similar case. He finds himself in exile, um, as it were, in Berlin, looking back at Eastern Europe through this experimental, um, lens. Um, so that, that's sort of how I would describe Kulbach. Um, he's, he's just a, a writer who's very close to my heart because he, he's, uh, truly experimental, um, in the best sense of the word. So your next chapter is about, uh, Yuri's V. Greenberg, the bilingual Yiddish and Hebrew poet. Tell us about him and the impact of European modernism on his development. Okay, so Greenberg, and I would say that he, of the four figures that I focused on um, in the book, is really the most well-known. Um, but he's not necessarily well that well-known as a bilingual poet, and that was the side of him that I wanted to highlight in the book. Um, and I wanted to highlight that also in order to make a case for Berlin as a place where this kind of um, linguistic and cultural experimentation could take place at a time before writers really had to nail down their national commitments um, and be either Zionists or communists or whatever the case may be. This was kind of this this moment of openness and, and possibility. Um, and so Greenberg came from Warsaw uh, to Berlin, um, and he, he his circumstances were sort of different from Kulbach's because Kulbach really came there as this adventurous young man, um, just looking for, um, looking for something new. And Greenberg, by contrast, came out of necessity. Um, in Warsaw, he had been publishing, um, and editing a journal called Albatross that was a highly experimental Yiddish, um, journal for poetry and art. And he published in that journal a really sort of incendiary poem, um, that was written in the shape of a, of a cross, um, but in Yiddish, um, in which he portrayed himself as a kind of Christ figure. And this was something that got him in a lot of trouble with the Polish Catholic authorities. And so he essentially fled to Berlin, um, because this was a place that, as I said, was really open, um, to all kinds of people of all political stripes and all cultural stripes. And, um, so he, he didn't, he didn't really go to Berlin out of a desire to be in Berlin. He went there really out of, out of a kind of necessity. Um, but while he was there, he, like Kulbach, um, became immersed in, in the different cultural influences. Um, and, uh, he started also while he was there to make a, a transition from writing exclusively in Yiddish to writing in both Yiddish and Hebrew, um, and eventually really came to identify as a Zionist. And it was from Berlin that he um, he decided to immigrate to the land of Israel as an ardent Zionist. Um, and he ended up becoming a pretty extreme kind of figure politically, very, very right-wing, um, in the way that we would understand that term even today, um, uh, and really 
used his time in Berlin as um, the period in which he really cemented his Zionist commitments and essentially bid farewell to Europe, um, which he thought was no longer welcoming to the Jews. In many ways, I think he was he had a great deal of foresight um, in the 20s to already kind of understand that Europe was never going to be a welcoming home to the Jews. Um, but he kind of took those beliefs to the extreme and became um, almost fascistic in his um, in, in, in his sort of attitude toward um, Zionism and, and a Jew and a home for the Jews in the land of Israel. Um, so what I kind of explore in this chapter is um, the way in which he makes this transition um, from one language to another, from Yiddish to Hebrew, um, and also from a kind of exilic uh, European Jewish identity to a really strong uh, Zionist identity. Um, so for him, I think the Berlin experience had an impact not only on, on, his, on his writing in terms of style, um, as it did for Kulbach, but it also had a really strong impact on themes of his writing and on his politics. And this is something that really comes through in the writing that he then produces in Hebrew, um, initially in Berlin and then in, in Palestine, in which he's really rejecting Europe um, and rejecting what he views as an exilic Jewish identity um, in favor of uh, a kind of strong Hebrew identity. Right. So your last chapter covers uh, the twilight years of the Weimar Republic through looking at the poet Gertrude Kolmar. Tell us about her and her poetry and fiction. Um, so Kolmar is yet another one of these figures who in many ways has been forgotten. She was, and, and that might have something to do with the fact that she doesn't quite fit the mold of what we typically associate with Weimar writers. She wasn't writing in an expressionist style. She wasn't writing in the new object, uh, new objectivity style that was popular during the day. Um, she wasn't part of a kind of cohort of, of writers meeting in cafes. She was a bit of a recluse. Um, she was a nature lover. She preferred sitting outside in her garden to sitting in a smoke-filled cafe with other writers and intellectuals. Um, so she's a bit of a, of a misfit in the history of Weimar culture and of German Jewish culture. Um, but she was a remarkable poet, um, whose, whose style, again, wasn't, wasn't in keeping necessarily with the trends of the day. Um, but she, uh, one of the things that really interested me, um, when I started to explore her work was the fact that, uh, she wrote fairly explicitly about being a Jew and specifically being a Jewish woman in, um, the Weimar Republic. And that comes through most strongly in the novel that she wrote called Eine Jüdische Mutter, A Jewish Mother, that takes place, um, as you put it, in the twilight years of the Weimar Republic, 1930 uh, and 31. So right around the time that um, the Nazi party actually gained a foothold in parliament, really foreshadowing Hitler's rise to power in 1933. And, um, she writes this novel that is brutal. Um, it has to do with, um, child molestation and infanticide and all of the most kind of heavy themes that you can think of. But she writes this as a kind of allegory for 
the decline of German-Jewish culture, of what German Jews for a long time had hoped or even believed was a kind of symbiosis of German and Jewish cultures. Um, and, and this is kind of her way of saying either that never existed or if it did, it's, it's dying. Um, and Colmar, um, I mean, it's remarkable to me that she was able to write a novel this um, sort of brutally honest uh, during this period. Um, and she ended up being transported to Auschwitz um, where she was killed um, and, uh, uh, but she was the only one of the writers that I dealt with in this book who stayed in Berlin essentially to the bitter end, um, and was actually engaged in exploring the politics and the identity politics of this period in, in a really, um, stunningly honest and, and brutal way. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess I'll leave it at that. Well, the book is uh, Strangers in Berlin, Modern Jewish Literature Between East and West, um, 1919 to 1933, um, published in 2016 by the University of Michigan Press. Um, and as you um, have heard, it's a really very interesting and groundbreaking book. Before we let you go, Rachel, um, if you could just tell us a little bit about what you're working on next. Sure. Um, well, I'm actually right now I've just tied up a project, which is an edited volume that I worked on together with Amir Eschel, who's a professor of German and Hebrew at Stanford. Um, it's a book that grew out of a conference that I organized a few years ago in Jerusalem on um, German-Hebrew encounters. Um, the title of the book is The German-Hebrew uh, the German Hebrew Dialogue, Studies of Encounter and Exchange. Um, and it's a collection of essays that are dedicated to taking a new look at the relationship between German and Hebrew cultures, um, not only in literature, although that's the focus of several of the essays and certainly my focus, um, but also in film, in theater, um, uh, even in intellectual history. And... Um, uh, uh, we actually even have one essay on public art. Um, so uh, the the book, um, from a number of different angles, kind of looks at um, the way in which German and Hebrew, or specifically German-Jewish and Hebrew cultures, have informed one another really since the Enlightenment. Um, and I guess what we're trying to do with the book is to call into question or even to challenge um, the assumption that these two languages and the cultures that they represent are completely at odds with each other and completely divergent, which is sort of what people typically tend to think, especially um, when you think of uh, the attitudes that were taken toward German in the state of Israel during the early years of statehood. German was really anathema. German was associated with the Holocaust, with Nazis, um, and really something to be shunned. And uh, what, what we're kind of trying to show in this book is that the story is a little bit more complex than that, that um, Hebrew writers were drawing uh, a lot of influence from German culture and from German Jewish culture, and vice versa. German Jews were um, expressed a, a kind of ongoing fascination with Hebrew. Um, uh, and, and I guess in many ways my interest in this grew out of the work that I did on Ludwig Strauss, this writer who became a bilingual German Hebrew poet, 
which we can't can't even quite imagine usually because we sort of think of um, German Jews as never managing to learn Hebrew well enough to actually write in it. And we tend to think of Hebrew writers or Israeli writers as shunning all things German. Um, but Strauss wasn't alone. There were there are a lot of examples of, of writers, including um, Yehuda Michai, who's seen as the national Israeli poet whose native language was German and who actually wrote German poetry, um, even if it wasn't published. Um, writers like Nathan Zach, um, Yoel Hoffman, uh, a whole host of writers who, who had these kind of ties to, to German. So, um, that's the edited volume and I'm, I'm starting to think about another monograph, um, that is, uh, kind of on a similar theme that I'll be looking specifically at, uh, bilingualism, um, in the German Hebrew example of literary bilingualism, um, how it is that writers can A, write in two languages, and B, write in two languages that are seen as being at odds with one another. Um, well, both those projects uh, sound um, really interesting and exciting, so we definitely hope to have you on the program again to discuss them. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you for having me. Great. All right, thanks very much, Rachel, and thanks for listening. <laughs>